This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Best of the Best is powered by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform used by creative teams at more than 200,000 companies worldwide to manage their work their way. To learn more and to get $50 in Airtable credit, visit Airtable.com slash Third Coast. That's Airtable.com slash Third Coast, all lowercase, no spaces. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Palace Shaw, and this is Best of the Best. Third Coast is an independent, nonprofit arts organization in Chicago that celebrates the art and craft of narrative audio storytelling. We do a lot of things an industry conference, an audio residency, public programs, a few podcasts, and it's all with the goal of supporting audio makers and bringing their best to you. On top of all that, each year we host an international competition to highlight stories that are moving and impactful. This year is actually the 20th anniversary of the Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Over the past two decades, we've received thousands of audio stories, and this year we heard more than ever. 731 entries from 39 different countries. That's right, 731 stories, and nearly 40 countries ranging from Armenia to Liberia, India to Chile. We listened to every single story. Then, we enlisted an incredibly talented group of judges to do the difficult work of selecting just 11 stories to award top honors. These are the stories we're thrilled to present to you on Best of the Best. Now, typically we'd honor this great work at an award ceremony, with a decorated stage, moving music, and even a red carpet, complete with a photographer and spotlights. We had to totally reimagine that this year. You know why. Many schools around the world, as you know, have shut down. Beach closures for the 4th of July. SeaWorld, Legoland, closing Sunday. You shouldn't be holding uh, parties. You shouldn't be going to sporting events. Other world religions are adopting similar measures. to. The government has again banned the sale of alcohol. All of these things we take for granted, we have to reconsider and reassess. And that was the theme we heard again and again across this year's submissions. Stories of adjustments made, memories of pandemics past, and ways of surviving the present. We begin with our 2020 Impact Award winner. The Impact category was created to honor work that goes beyond the production process to consider how it will exist in the world 
after it has been published. This year, that award went to In Those Genes, a podcast that uses genetics to uncover the lost identities of African-descended Americans through the lens and ear of Black culture. In the episode Datrona, host Dr. Janina Jeff and producer Sam Riddell answer listener questions about the coronavirus with fellow medical professional Dr. Ashira Blazer. They connect those questions to historically false narratives about pandemics in the Black community in the U.S. and offer constructive ways to think about risk factors and safety during this time. Just a note, this podcast was recorded back in March and was a response to that moment. So, there may be some new information about the virus that has appeared. For the most up-to-date information, please visit cdc.gov coronavirus. Okay, here's an excerpt from Datrona. Okay, well, I'm a witness here. What I seen was a horrible, tragic situation. situation. You know you're wrong. All the lights all gone. This episode was directly motivated by the community who looked to us for answers, especially around some erroneous claim that Black people have genomes that protect them from that Rona. Now, at first, this seemed far-fetched to me. But after doing some reading, it turns out this narrative might have started during slavery. In 1740, yellow fever had taken over American coastal cities like Charleston, South Carolina. And one doctor, Dr. Lining, observed the cases on incoming slave ships recording that all infected were white passengers. His recordings were later used by another physician during another yellow fever outbreak in 1793 in Philadelphia. At this time, half of the population in Philly left, but because of the notes from 1740, A doctor in Philly recommended that all black people remain and get trained to nurse, caretake, and dig graves for thousands of white people predicted to die of yellow fever. The doctor who recommended this was a well-known abolitionist who was at the time connected with black leaders of the AME church. These black leaders trusted this doctor and his recommendation to keep black people in Philly. They even encouraged their congregations to stay as it was their Christian duty. It turned out everyone was wrong. Black people were not immune to yellow fever. And as a result, hundreds of African-Americans died under this false belief. Incorrect narratives are deadly to our community. And it is the last thing we would want at a time like this, even from people we trust. And we are here today to have a transparent conversation and share facts based on scientific knowledge. Hey, Ashira. Hey, Janina. How are you? Girl, I'm dealing. I mean, I have a wave of emotions just up and down every day with COVID-19. And I'm just so grateful that we can have this conversation to talk about it because there's so much misinformation and things that are going on. And I knew you would be the perfect person to talk to. Yeah, uh, same. I think we're all going through a wave of emotions and you know, just professionally, personally, this has been very taxing. So I'm very glad we get to talk about it. Let's talk specifically, though, because your passion is, you know, very closely related to mine, which is why we have so much fun talking about science every day, because we are so invested in solving and closing the gap in health disparities, particularly for Black folks. So let's discuss specifically what black people need to know about COVID-19? Like, how can we do this in this scenario? Yeah, so 
I think black people just need to know that we have to protect ourselves the same as everyone else. This is sort of the kind of thing where a community people can protect the whole. So we understand that not everyone's going to be able to work from home. Not everyone is going to be able to stay um, secluded from the rest of society. But for those of us who can, we, we need to. We really do. Because the more we uh, take heed, the slower this virus spreads. So that's important for a couple of reasons. Whenever you get a sudden surge in a virus that requires hospital care, um, the hospitals can be overwhelmed. If we can sort of flatten out that curve so that the number of cases are more manageable, then when people do get sick, they can get the care and attention that they need. I was listening to, or I was reading actually, a case in Italy where they don't have enough beds. They had to decide... Do I give a bed to an 80-year-old person who is more like more than likely not going to survive from this disease? Or do I give it to a chronically ill 45-year-old who could survive? And I hate that these types of decisions are going to have to be made. But the thing that makes me so concerned is how that is going to impact the Black community. Because we already experienced this discrimination in care about just simple things like black women experiencing pain and believing that pain. So like, what are some things we could and should do if we do become sick to either, you know, combat that discrimination? What are things we can tell our doctors so that they take us serious and give us beds if we need them and they're available? And also, what are things we can do if we, if the worst case scenario happens and we don't get access to care? So I'm, I'm very, very concerned about that as well. So, you know, most of the time when these decisions are, are made, like who gets the bed or who gets the vent, um, there are objective scores uh, that we use to determine who's most likely to survive in a given critical care situation. Um, so... I think the only thing racially that influences those scores is that, you know, again, as we talked about, Black people are more likely to have background issues, so background comorbidities. So, you know, a Black person coming in who's chronically ill and then gets coronavirus on top of that might have a lower score um, than someone who doesn't, right? But the thing that just gives me so much anxiety about this is that you know, we talk about the number of ICU beds that are going to be needed, and we talk about the number of ICU beds that we have, but we know that not all people have equal access to all of those beds, right? Like in New York, at least, we have a public hospital system, and it is already more strained than the private sector, and Black and brown people are more likely to depend on the public hospitals. So, you know, shrink that number of beds down to whatever you can get with your insurance and, you know, or lack thereof in, in your financial situation, then the, the pot of resources for Black people and Brown people is smaller than for the general population. On top of that, you know, the number of doctors that are available, the, the facilities, uh, the infrastructure that's available in those systems is not on pace with the general population. So what we can do about it is stop 
you know, thinking that this is not a thing, right? Like we especially have to take this seriously. We especially have to make sure it doesn't spread in our communities because, you know, should we need that care, our resources are going to be less. How to make your doctor take you seriously. I would say that most doctors are taking this, most doctors that I talk to are taking this seriously. And as testing comes online, which has been shamefully slow, but as testing is coming online, and then just being aware of the symptoms, you know, um, the most common symptoms are fever and cough. Uh, less common symptoms are, you know, sore throat, malaise, like all of those go along with the syndrome. But, you know, right now, if you go to your doctor and you say, I've been having fever and cough, and by the way, this person is sick too, I think it's coronavirus. <laughs> I, I think that people are going to be tested for it. I want to get into um, questions and answers. A lot of you, before we spoke about it or posted anything, have asked questions. And so we welcome those questions. Now we are going to take time to answer them. Let's get started with a Q&A. Is there a population of people that are genetically predisposed to the virus? Not necessarily more vulnerable, just more likely based on genes, dietary history, proximity to clean water, and so forth. I'm not making the case for anything crazy, but I wonder. Yeah, so nobody knows that. <laughs> um, I, and Janina, I don't know, do you have... Uh, yeah, I can go ahead I mean, and take this conjecture. one if you want. Uh, yeah. For everything that we know, they, there has been some studies that have looked at the genetics of the host immune system. And so this is, you know, your genome and seeing if there are signatures in your genome that make you trigger, that triggers an immune response um, that might help you survive or mitigate very severe outcomes. This was done for, I believe, the first SARS and tested in MERS. Um, a lot of these were all done in white people. A lot of these were very small sample sizes. A lot of these have not been replicated. And also, a lot of scientists have wrote papers that said, hey, we don't observe the same thing. So we can't assume that it's genetic. And what we know about our genomes, what we know about the immune system, it is unlikely but there are no studies that prove this. The way I like to think about science, it needs to be replicated several times across a lot of different populations and large sample sizes before I believe it's real. Okay, so our next question, is there any truth to black people having less ACE2 enzymes in their body? I read that this is, quote, an open parenthesis, may be the reason why black people may be more resistant, open parentheses, not immune, closed parentheses, to coronavirus? Uh, so, no. <laughs> There's no evidence that black people have more or less ACE receptors, nor is there evidence that black people are, are more or less resistant to this, to this disease. So just to clarify, ACE2 is a protein found on the surface of cells in your heart and lung. There's also a class of drugs called ACE inhibitors. Ashira could tell us a little bit more about those medications. Medications in the category of ACE inhibitors. So a lot of us take these uh, lisinopril, captopril, anything that ends in pril. It's a medicine that we use commonly for high blood pressure. It also is used in people who have um, chronic heart conditions. So, you know, your heart and lung tissues um, increase the number of ACE receptors on the outside of the cells. And this coronavirus enters the cells using those same receptors. 
And can we go back to that myth of Black people being resistant to COVID-19 and where else that misconception may have come from? I think it's really interesting because just sort of to add this, um, a lot of people are saying, oh, we'll see Africa is not the epicenter of this uh, outbreak. Like, you know, we're not seeing a ton of cases in Africa. Does that mean that Black people are resistant? You have to remember, they just had Ebola. And so they have all the equipment and infrastructure to detect early the cases, quarantine early, treat, and then make sure that their population is not uh, exposed. So like um, one of my really good friends is an internist in Liberia. And she says that as soon as these cases started popping up in China, everyone who came through the airport got a questionnaire. There was fever screening for everyone coming into the country. All the buildings that you walk in and out of have uh, fever monitors so they can determine the temperature of the crowds as they pass through. And people who tend, who have fevers are taken aside and tested. So they've done a really good job of making sure this doesn't start off in their communities uh, in ways that we were just slow to do in the U.S. I actually, I asked that too of my colleagues in, in Nigeria and Liberia and Ghana. So they, they had, they got testing before we did. <laughs> so they took, uh, they got the test from uh, the WHO. So they were able to test more widely even before we did here in the U.S. Next question. How are you hospital doctors dying from it? If they are dying, do any of us stand a chance? I mean, we're exposed, right? Like, and this really goes back to the reason why it's so important for people to just follow guidelines and stay home because we don't have a choice as to whether or not we're going to come into the hospital and try and save lives. We took an oath to do this. This is our profession. This is our passion. So we are going to have to make sacrifices. And for some of us, unfortunately, that sacrifice will be our lives. And so, you know, as a physician, to look on the news and see people partying on the beach or taking advantage of real cheap airline prices because this coronavirus has the prices ridiculous, right? You just say, wow, like how selfish can people be? You know, like understanding that you're putting yourself and other people at risk. The number of people who come into the hospital will be higher than the number of doctors who can serve them, and then the amount of protective equipment that we have available. And so because of that influx, we will have to risk our lives. The luxury that you have as someone who is not a healthcare professional is that you can protect yourself and you can stay home and you can protect your family. I can't. I have to go to the hospital and I have to be around people who have this. So yes, you stand a chance because you can follow the guidelines and you can stay safe. Some of us aren't that lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry you have to deal with this. I don't know. It's very brave. What are ways that we can help volunteer empower the black community and other marginalized groups to stay home and stop spreading the virus? Stop spreading misinformation. Yes. For one. So if you hear somebody say something that you know is not right, like black people can't get this, this is a hoax, somebody paid Idris Elba to say they had it, you know, just shut that down. You know, make sure that those narratives aren't spreading because what we think precedes what we do. And if what we do is spread this stuff like wildfire, like everybody's in trouble. 
All right, fam. It's gene therapy time. The segment in which we affirm our genomes. On today's gene therapy, I want to talk a bit about the circle of life. No, not the song with Simba and Mufasa in them, but more so about viruses, humans, other species of animals, and the nature of how we all coexist together. First of all, there are over 200 viruses in humans alone. And if you look at all living organisms, other animals, plants, bacteria, there are over 10 non-million of them. That's 10 with 30 zeros behind it. Scientists estimate that less than 1% of viruses actually cause disease. Viruses, just like us, want to live their best non-living lives in every space they're allowed to inhabit. And believe it or not, they do a lot of good in the world. Viruses are found in a very large number of ocean bacteria. And this partnership between the two is extremely beneficial in maintaining life in our oceans. Viruses in the ocean kill 20% of the ocean microbial biomass, which directly impacts nutrients for other species and, of course, our own energy cycle. Viruses in plants can help them survive extreme conditions like drought or winter. Besides keeping our oceans great, viruses can also have a direct positive impact on mammals. Inactive herpes viruses have been found to be beneficial in fighting off the bubonic plague in mice. Have you ever chewed on a piece of bread and after a while it started to taste sweet? You can thank a virus for that. Viral DNA in our genomes tell our salivary glands to produce an enzyme, amylase, that makes carbs taste sweet. And tasty food helps us eat and thus ensures our survival. Tastes so good, make you want to slap your mama, don't it, Willie? Yeah, boy. Even before we're born, viruses hold us down. The human placenta that allows embryos to receive nutrients has proteins that evolved from viruses. We can't really hold viruses accountable for functioning how they were made and living their best non-living lives. But in the coming days, weeks, and possibly even months, we can hold each other accountable. We can hold our government here in the States accountable for not accepting adequate testing from the World Health Organization when it was presented to us. We can hold our friends accountable for choosing to go out and party even while knowing that doing so would put us all at risk for overwhelming our hospitals with rapid spread of the virus. We can hold ourselves accountable for xenophobic remarks, the spreading of misinformation, the hoarding of resources, and lack of empathy for one another. And in the coming days, weeks, and months, I truly believe we can turn this thing around. Kick that Rona off our couch and all live our best collective lives as a community going forward. See you in the future, fam. Peace. That was an excerpt from That Rona, winner of the 2020 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Impact Award. It was produced for the podcast In Those Genes by host and executive producer Dr. Janina Jeff. Sam Riddell was the lead producer, with music producer Chad Milner and creative director Chris Diggins. Dr. Shira Blazer was the guest medical expert. To listen to the full version of this story, as well as all the rest of this year's winners, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. A lot has happened in the world since Stat Rona was recorded. 
I wanted to talk to the team about the making of that episode, so I called up Dr. Janina Jeff and producer Sam Riddell. I mean, there's so much I want to talk about about this episode, Datrona, so I'll kind of just get into it, but it covers so much information, and I heard it was made on an incredibly short timeline. Um, I saw the release date was like March 20th, and I was like, mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk to us a little bit about the team effort behind the production process in that short period of time? Yeah, sure. Um, So we had episodes in the bank for the whole season, so this was not scoped out, and during COVID, when COVID happened, um, a lot of people were were hitting me up on social media and asking me, and there were these rumors that were going around that Black people were immune to coronavirus. And like, whenever I have something like really substantial to say, I I will write out a threaded tweet. And, you know, a lot of times we, we have a group chat and we talk about science and we talk about things that are going on. And I brain dumped this and it just started to kind of like form into an episode, really. It really was something that I feel uh, we were called to do and we were specifically called by the community to do it. And of course, I work full time as a scientist, so it wasn't the most convenient thing either. Um, But yeah, that's kind of how the episode came into fruition. Yeah, for sure. So we turned that around in three days. Just to give some context, we typically turn around episodes in a month's time. Initially, I think we just wanted it to be an interview with our expert Ashira, right? Like at first? Yeah. So at first it was going to be just going to be a conversation with Ashira and I, and we were just going to publish that. And she and I just talk all day about science. And, you know, we were co-writing this tweet together and just really trying to you know, dot our I's and cross our T's, which is something that I would say is a big challenge in in making a science podcast is accuracy. And and especially at a tricky time when you don't have a lot of data and you don't know. One of the things I did very early on a lot was I went in the weeds on the details and like, oh, but if I say that this is a gene, I got to talk about what a pseudo gene is. I got to tell you all the things and making trade-offs on what is the take-home message that I need to get across and what are the details that are not necessary to accomplish that goal. And so trying to think about how we can answer these questions and address the concerns, but how do we, you know, more specifically recenter the audience and the concerns and address the concerns that are specific to the black community? Mm -hmm. Right. And like we did the interview and you had scripted out like a little intro or something and we can't help but jazz things up, you know? <laughs> we tried to be basic, but we just We basic. really we did try to be basic because we said, like, this is going to come out Tuesday, I think. And we started talking about this on Sunday. So, like, we had all intentions of just making this a bare bones kind of thing. But me and Janina are just, like, not bare bones kind of people. It's just not who we are. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, we started to jazz it up and kind of add those uh, cultural analogies and One of the funnest parts about that episode, even though it is about such a dark thing, is uh, the intro song. Janina is from New Orleans. Uh, Bounce is heavily inspired in the show. That's a genre of music. And our regular intro is a bounce track. And I can I curse on here? Okay, so I came across this (laughs) bounce song uh, by an artist named Gotti Boy Chris that was like, (laughs) <laughs> you know you're wrong all the lights all gone because that was when everybody was stealing all the lights all and he's just like f the corona f f f f f f the corona and i'm like i wish we could open up with this and this is why i love working with janina and chris and chad because Janina was like why can't we open up with this <laughs> and yeah just like that kind of spirit of 
we always want this show to be telling the truth and giving this information, but giving it in an accessible way and using memes and things like that are super accessible. I don't like this. I've been looking for some tissue paper all night. If you feel comfortable answering, like in creating this episode at the beginning of the pandemic, did working on it at all have like an effect on how you were thinking or feeling or moving through things at the time? Uh, for me, yeah. Having really the space to express and share what I'm learning through the podcast was very therapeutic for me. At a time where I felt like I couldn't do anything, it gave me a sense of purpose. And so after we made that episode, it was hard to move on to the next episode as if things were back to normal. And so we didn't. We actually continued to make COVID updates and uh, during all of this, I actually did have COVID and sharing that experience with our audience was therapeutic too. I think this episode for me, um, I'm kind of a hypochondriac, so I take everything a little bit seriously. <laughs> so I was already really scared of this, but this kind of kickstarted my grieving process. There was just a moment where uh, <laughs> It made me cry while we were recording with her. It made me cry while editing it. So I'm trying to hold in that part of myself now. But um, Ashir was talking about, you know, because she works as a medical doctor and she was talking about just, uh, she just sounded like somebody who knew that she was going to go into war. So that was like the first wave of feeling for me. And I feel it constantly over and over again. Dr. Janina Jeff and Sam Riddell, producers of the 2020 impact-winning piece, Dat Rona. Our next story is the inaugural winner of the Best Documentary Short Award, a category created to honor the intention and craft that goes into making an audio story that is under 10 minutes long. The story was a part of Hunker Down Diaries, a limited series that tells surprising stories from people and relationships impacted in different ways by the COVID-19 pandemic. Joe Newman was five years old when the Spanish flu tore through the country. Today, he lives with his fiance Anita Sampson, in Sarasota, Florida, and together, their combined ages add up to an incredible 207 years. Anita was supposed to celebrate her 100th birthday with a party earlier this year, but all of that changed when they had to go into lockdown. Instead, they picked up a microphone and began recording their experience. Microphone is plugged in, the light is red. All right, now I say something. I am Joe Newman, and I am with my partner, Anita, who today is 100 years old. And we're sitting here side by side. Well, first of all, I woke up this morning and I was glad when I saw you open your eyes and every morning we both always check to see if we're still breathing before we get out of yes, bed. Yes, <laughs> But getting up this morning and seeing what's going on in the world, it's very sad. But we have adjusted to it, and we're really following all the rules just the way you're supposed to. Yeah, and we're told to stay in the apartment and are not supposed to go around and mingle with the others. Personally, 
I've never seen anything like this before in my entire life. But, Joe, what was the first thing you remember about the 1918 flu? Strangely, the way I remember it is I remember the neighborhood and the house maybe 100 yards across the street from us was a family we knew, and one of that family was about my age, and I remember that he died because of the flu. Of course, as a kid, five years old, death didn't mean that much to me except that he was now missing. I also remember public health putting signs on the door of the family the family with the disease was quarantined. I don't remember except what my mother told me when I got older. And she said there was so much death. She was in her early 20s and she would go out into the streets and help people that were just dropping. They were just lying there on the streets. But she never got it. How would you compare what was going on then to what is happening now? As far as this coronavirus, I take a philosophical view. It's another event. It's another problem. Over 107 years, I've faced other problems. Living is a problem. You do what you need to do to handle the problem that's in front of you at this moment. And this moment, it's a virus which, unfortunately, we don't understand too much about, especially the fact that it's supposed to affect the elderly more than those younger. And, well, you have to remember, I'm a little bit older than you are. (laughs) And being my age, it's hard to say this, but... You have days when you would almost welcome death because you figure, well, uh, you've been here long enough, so be it. What's your reaction? Well, about two weeks before we were told that we had to stay in our apartments, I had gotten a cold, and I was really scared that this was happening to me. Fortunately, it was just a, a mild cold. But I was getting anxious because I I wanted to reach 100. <laughs> all of a sudden, it became very important to me. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to die. You know, this is new to me. You've always indicated to me that uh, you had no fear. You know... The reason why I don't want to die is because I like being around you. I like being in this relationship, and I really don't want it to stop. Well, that's the best thing I've heard in the last two hours. (laughs) But do you love me? Do I love you? I think so. I think so. In, in spite of our age, spite of the fact that together we're 207, you know, the years that we can look forward to, whatever they be, whether they be many or few, 
and even if they're just days, you know, to look forward to them and then hope for another one. Isn't that beautiful? I think they've been reminiscing enough, and I think it's time for a lap. All right. That was 107-year-old Joe Newman and 100-year-old Anita Sampson, who recorded themselves as a part of the Hunger Down Diaries from Radio Diaries for NPR. Centenarians in Lockdown won the first-ever Best Documentary Short Award. It was produced by Nellie Gillis, Sarah Kate Kramer, and Joe Richman, and edited by Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. When Radio Diaries won this award, the team called Joe and Anita to let them know. And luckily for us, they recorded that call. Joe and Anita, how are you both doing? I'm doing well, thank you. We have some news we wanted to tell you. We have some news they want to tell us. Okay. The story that we did together, your story, it won an award. You, you won an award. You, you won an award. We, we won, won an award. Yeah. For, what? for the story that we did. I said we won an award. We did. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Oscars for radio. It's, oh, it's like the Oscars for radio. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. <laughs> Do you, is there any message that you would want to give to the people out there at the ceremony? Uh, look forward to every day as to what your part is going to be in that day. Try to be a progressive part of it. And so uh, you're making life better for somebody else uh, rather than making it worse for them. And figure that you have to look in the mirror that night and tell yourself, did I add or detract from what's going on today? And uh, and my responsibility in that. Okay, thank congratulations you. on the award. That's very exciting. Something to look. Oh at. yes, it is. It's important to be able to look forward to things mm-hmm. and to have a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, lots of good luck to you. Yeah. Good luck on what you're doing. That was Radio Diaries producer Joe Richman speaking with centenarians Anita Sampson and Joe Newman. Coming up after the break, not everyone gets to choose who they're quarantined with. How, how am I to you? You're okay at taking care of us, I guess. Lucky for these two, their sister has things pretty under control. Okay. Can I get a great, awesome, uh, wonderful, of your great at taking care of me? Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Paula Shaw. You want to practice your letter M again? Yeah. Today we're listening to a few winners of our annual documentary competition. Haley is working on something. What are you working on? These three stories each provide a unique glimpse into life in the time of Corona. Hey guys, Miss Sophie will be right back, okay? Okay. Miss Sophie's gonna go help somebody with technology real quickly, okay? Okay. I'm gonna put directions in the chat. Our final story of the hour is the winner of the 2020 Best News Feature Award, which is specifically for stories intended to inform or investigate, and often created on a short timeline. In this story, which was published in May, we follow high school junior Sarah Ali Brown as she shares what life has been like since her Chicago high school closed its doors. Ali Brown has twin eight-year-old brothers. With school shuttered and their single mom working two jobs as an essential worker, she now cares for her siblings full-time while also trying to balance the challenges of distance learning. Here's Sarah. My mom is never home. She works around the clock. Her name is Oluwafumike, but people call her Olu for short. I'm from Nigeria. I'm 44. My mom, she's an immigrant from Nigeria. She's been in this country half her life. She works really, really hard. Okay, mommy, can you describe your day-to-day life? Basically, how has coronavirus changed from your day-to-day life? How did it change? It's really changed. Explain. Since coronavirus starts, I've been working like in a lot of hours. So when I came home from my night job. At night, she works as an aide at a nursing home. She gets off around 7 in the morning, and she comes straight home. I put on my clothes. I go to my other job. And then she's right back out the door. She goes to her other job as a home health aide. So you go to your other job without sleeping? You don't yeah. sleep? Yes, I don't know. I didn't sleep. My dad isn't around. He left when I was in the seventh grade. What makes you go? I go because I have to go to work to make sure I be okay. I have a mortgage to pay. I have a lot of bills to pay. And it's only me. My mom, she takes care of everything. She pays the mortgage, the bills. But if she is at the top of the pyramid, I'm literally right under her. Because as soon as she steps out the house, the responsibility is all on me. Um, I'm I'm basically responsible for my two brothers. It's like when they need something, they come to me. Sorry, it's my little brother. His name is Samuel. 
I have twin little brothers. One has autism. Samuel doesn't really talk much. He's probably hungry or something. That's probably why he came in my room. What does he want? He wants me to make him rice. Okay. Sam's like favorite thing to eat is rice. I guess since we gonna do it. Sam, the way um he calls me, he basically just pulls my arm and whatever he wants, he just bring my arm towards it, pulling me and telling me like, oh, this is what I want. Samuel needs school most of all. He misses his speech therapist. I do what I can to teach him new words. Most days, it's not even enough. But we are good company to each other. What autism is to me, I don't see it as a disability. I try to recognize patterns. Why is he tapping his finger? Like, why is he doing this? And what people usually think is someone who doesn't talk or jumping up and down or don't like loud noises. But once you kind of understand what it is or what he's going through, that boy is so very, very smart. Then there's Samuel's twin, Emmanuel. So now Emmanuel's bouncing this ball around. Um, what? I gotta talk to you. What? What do I do? What do I do? Sit down. How was life with me in the coronavirus? Uh, you okay? Uh-huh. me, I said okay, don't. Don't get too emotional. <laughs> One of the pros is that I sleep whenever I want. Cons is a ton. There's a ton of cons. Oh, please let me know what the cons are. Uh, you scream too much. You talk to your friends too much. You, you kicked me out of your room one time just to listen to music. There's only one pro. Yeah, that that's it. How, how am I to you? You okay at taking care of us, I guess. Okay. Can I get a great, awesome, uh, wonderful... I'm great at taking care of you. Say yes. it. You're, you're great. At what? At taking care of me? Yes. Ding, 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 ding. What? Thank you. We'll talk later. No, we're go. not going to talk later. You suck at me. <laughs> at night, when it's quiet, I think about everything I'm trying to do. It was like 11 o'clock, and I was just thinking, I was thinking a lot. So I'm like, this is the perfect time to record my thoughts. And I was thinking about this program called Chicago Scholars, and it's like a really great program. And it gives you scholarship money for college. If you get into it, you know you are one of the best students in your high school. So when they sent me the email, it was like, congratulations, you made it to like the next part of Chicago Scholars. I was just like the happiest person in the world. So I had to do like video interviews. and. If the pandemic wasn't going on, they would have did face-to-face, in-person. And like, over video, I messed up so many times. The first question, I didn't even answer it. There was also another question that was like, tell me about yourself. I could not even tell them about myself. Honestly, I was saying stuff like, <laughs> like my favorite color and stuff. I'm Nigerian, and like, I was just not saying what I was supposed to be saying. But honestly, I was just so scared. I let my nerves get the best of me because this is so, so big. And it's just like, really? Did I really just mess this up for myself? I did what I always do when I'm sad. I put on some music. My favorite rapper, his name is Little Baby. He said a line and he was like, sometimes I feel like the floor is giving in on me. I work so hard, but I can't stop because people are depending on me. 
And that's my life right now. My mom depends on me, my little brothers. This moment, I feel like the floor was actually giving in on me. Like, this is one of the best opportunities ever. And to know that I basically like failed on something that was just so, so great to me because I couldn't do it in person, felt heartbroken. But I have to keep going. My brothers still have to pass the third grade. I'm the one who helps them log on to e-learning. Sometimes they don't want to do it, and they're always asking for food. Um, I'm about to make Emmanuel a hot pocket right now because he rudely came in my room asking for a hot pocket. Yep. I'll call you when they're done. I'm what, Touche? He just called me a mate. He think I didn't just hear him call me a mate. like a bad person saying this, but it's times when it's like, oh my gosh, it's getting too much, it's getting too much. I just can't anymore. It's when I get like a total of 20 assignments from my teachers and they're like expecting me to do it. And I have eight other things to do at home. I have to try to help Sam and say a couple words, even though I'm not licensed to do that. I still want to try and do things. Or with Emmanuel, I have to help him get on e-learning and get in a couple assignments because I don't want him watching TV and playing a game all day. Now I have to learn how to like prioritize, which in school you have a schedule set right in front of you. But knowing in my heart, like, okay, the twins need me as well too. I'm doing this and I still have good grades and I'm still trying and and I'm still taking care of the twins and doing what I need to do. So it's like, okay, this is the story I can go tell them. Like, when you guys were eight, I was at home with you guys all day and you guys was blowing my mind, but I still made it and I still overcame. My mom is getting ready for work. She's out there in this pandemic taking care of tons of people. But sometimes I feel like she doesn't realize how much pressure I'm under. Do you worry about me taking on so much? Like, I do take college classes and I have assignments to turn in every Wednesday. And also I do have to do a lot of stuff for the twins too. And I still have to be turning in work for eight classes and I have to find new schools for college and SAT, SAT as well. Like, do you worry about me taking on a lot? Sarah? I really worry about you. She's holding my hand. She rarely does that. She's talking to me. She tells me she's really worried about me, that she still sees me as her baby, and that it's her job to take care of me, too. I'm your mother. If I tell you, do this, I'm not going to push you to something not good, like something bad. Mm -hmm. But she is also, like me and Emmanuel, unapologetic. She tells me that this is good for me. In her way, she's teaching me about life. I'm trying to make sure you learn. Okay. Yeah, so that's the only thing I worry about you. And when I tell you, like, my mom is amazing. And for her to go to work from 11 at night, come back to 7.30, and then go to her morning job at 9 o'clock, still cooking for us and doing so much amazing things. And when I make it and get where I'm supposed to be, I'm going to give it all to her because she gave her all to me. So we're all just like basically like waiting for her, going to work, getting ready for bed. What are you doing? Bye, mama. It's not necessary to record it.
Right after the house got quiet, I opened my email to some news. I had my phone and I recorded it. So I just got news that I did not make in Chicago Scholars. So yeah, I was crying, like bawling my eyes out, heartbroken, man, like, cause this is my future. I made it to the second round. I was the best person I could be. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna show Chicago Scholars like, this is why they should have picked me. This is what they're missing out on. Simple. If it wasn't for the coronavirus, they would have known, like, a real interview in person. I guarantee I would have made it in. But it's okay. It's all part of God's plan. Yeah. So, you're missing out on an amazing girl with great ideas that's open to the world, a critical thinker. You're missing out on so much. And that's just their loss. That was Diary of a Homeschooler, produced by Aniansi Diaz-Cortez for Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, in partnership with Chalkbeat. It was reported by Sarah Ali Brown with Kaylin Belsha and edited by Brett Myers. Kevin Sullivan was the executive producer. By the way, this is far from the first time Reveal has won an award from us. To hear more winning stories from this powerhouse investigative newsroom, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Here's producer Aniansi Diaz-Cortez and Sarah Ali Brown speaking at the virtual 2020 awards ceremony. This is very exciting. Thank you so much for recognizing us. I want to thank the radio team at Reveal for supporting journalism told in this format in first person, especially Kevin Sullivan and Al Letson, who enable us to try to make audio candy out of hard-hitting journalism. When Brett Myers, the editor, first told me that we were thinking of doing a COVID story that could be a diary, I kind of rolled my eyes. Six weeks to produce a diary from beginning to broadcast is intense and seemed like a nightmare. And then I met Sarah. She recorded herself over two weeks, interviewed her family, Olu, her mother, who is a force of nature, amassing almost a dozen hours of tape. And then she put her trust in me and Brett Myers to honor her story and her voice. Thank you, Sarah. Hello, everyone. I'm Sarah. I feel like it was just yesterday. I was sitting in my room crying over some trash boy. When the virus hit, I thought I had to accept that I will not accomplish any of my goals. I wouldn't pass the SATs or even go to college. All my goals inside my house paused. It was almost like this was destiny and meant to be. Faith, most people would call it. I thought I will always be afraid. I was always afraid to share this part of myself with anyone. And now I shared it with millions on national radio. <laughs> and the reason is Anayasi Diaz-Cortez. She took my story and she turned it to something that I actually will never forget about and will remember for the rest of my life. Knowing that I could do that empowered me. It helped me get up in the morning. It helped me understand that I am finally in control. Thank you to my little brothers, because without them, this will not be possible. Thank you to Kayla, Bell Shy, 
from Chalkbeat. Thank you for Mr. Phillips and of course my mom. You you work your butt off to inspire me every single day. And my dad, sending love all the way to Nigeria. Thank you, Third Coast. That was diarist Sarah Ali Brown and producer Aniansi Diaz-Cortez, winner of the 2020 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition Best News Feature Award. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Pala Shaw. Before we go, I want to acknowledge that this pandemic has not gone away. Across the world right now, there are hundreds of thousands of stories like the ones we heard today, of resilience and loss, of communities trying to educate and support one another. We're going through this together, and while there are similarities in all of our stories, we are all experiencing this moment differently. I hope wherever you are, you are keeping safe and finding strength in the stories of others. Hi, how's it going? Good. I'm engaged! <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. Um, I do apologize, I'm a bit excited. I've just become a granddad. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago and distributed by PRX. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez. Third Coast's executive director is Shirley Alfaro. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer, and the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Menaki Foundation, Arts for Illinois, National Endowment for the Arts, Illinois Humanities, Agadena Foundation, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors around the world. Third Coast is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 20 years of our competition, as well as thousands of outstanding audio stories from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.